Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. I am a writer, speaker, and educator who loves to gather around the table with interesting people who have different perspectives from me. And then we talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. And I include you in that comment because I say it every week, but I truly do enjoy hearing what you think about these topics as well. This week, I get to speak with Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Dyer, who is the Associate Professor of the Doctoral of Social Work Program and Associate Professor of Practice at Simmons University School of Social Work. I ran across Dr. Dyer's work when I read a book published by Dr. Vince Bontu. He was on this podcast in season two, episodes nine and 10, when we talked about the ancient and historic roots of Christianity in Africa. If you missed those, you should go listen to them. I had so many comments from people about those episodes, so make sure you listen. Anyway, Dr. Bantu recently edited a book called The Gospel Hymenote, which is great. And in this book, Dr. Dyer contributed a chapter. I read what she wrote, and I knew I needed to have her on the podcast. And she graciously created time to meet me after I hounded her down and kept pestering her to participate. Um, so I'm really glad that she's here and so glad that you get to listen to the wisdom she has to share with us. We started out with what influences have formed her views of the world and of God. So it's interesting because I'm an immigrant and so I spent the earlier years of my life in Jamaica and came to this country when I was young. And I recall and have figured out since that when my family moved to this country, we maintained a Jamaican household. So effectively, I grew up biculturally. Outside the home, I was in America. Inside my home, I was in Jamaica. And I remember until I left home for college, just about every social event that we went to was the broader community of people that my, my parents knew. And they were all Jamaicans. So even the social gatherings were had a Jamaican flavor to them. There's this way in which, to some extent, I lived in both worlds or had a foot in both worlds. And I remember going to church in Jamaica. I remember my parents sending us to Sunday school. It was definitely something my, my mom wanted to make sure. She sent us to Sunday school. We had to go. And when we were older, we were given space to choose to go or not to go. But when we were kids, it was very much an expected aspect of our foundation that we learned about God. And every Christmas, my mother sat us down and talked to us about what Christmas meant and definitely for Easter and made sure that we understood this was about God. It wasn't about presents. And it's not about colored eggs. It, you know, it's, there's about something more. And so God was in my life, but I, I don't know that I really knew God. And there's some people that get saved, I mean, seriously saved at a very young age. 
I think for me, that kind of salvation happened when I was in college, maybe in my last year of college. And as can happen, youth try to evangelize from their perspectives. And so my experience in that regard was you know, you need to claim Jesus. You, you need to give your life to Jesus. And, and there was this insistence without understanding. And so I felt the peer pressure, but I didn't really feel enlightened. And so I said, yes, yes. Basically, so they'd stop messing with me. <laughs> <laughs> and how many of us do that? You know, um, we say yes, but is there really any understanding? Mm. You know? So for me, after my rather interesting conversion, non-conversion, that summer, because I have some family in Massachusetts, I was invited to a church for a baby christening. And that was 12th Baptist Church in Boston. Reverend Michael Haynes was a pastor. And he preached a sermon using revelations. And the particular passage was, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spew you out. And in that moment, God gave me this waking vision of him throwing me up. And just this torrent, almost like Niagara Falls, emerging from God. And there was me without even a barrel to protect me from the the flood and the violence and the rawness that I was being ejected into. And I was like, no, no, God, don't leave me. And so I got up and I gave my life to Christ because it wasn't so much about fear. I, I felt God's distance. I felt God saying, you're not a part of me. And, and I, I could feel a distance opening up between me and God. And I was like, no, no, I don't want that. So I gave my life to God. And I, I, some people would say, you know, and I never look back since. And I can't say that I never look back since. I, I had my moment. And the moment came after I'd been growing in the Lord. And I was one of those people after I got saved, I, I wanted to know what is this thing that I believed so every time I read the Bible, I read with intention. I was looking for answers. I wanted to understand, what do I believe? What does the Bible say about X, Y, and Z? And every time I went to church, I went, okay, Lord, what is it you're saying to me today? And I listened for that word. And whatever that word was that I received, then I incorporated it into my life. And and I, I made that an active practice. And... So I was growing in the Lord, but I was growing without challenge to my faith. And as happens, either the challenge comes because the enemy is just trying to knock you off your game or because God really wants that faith to mature. And considering I ultimately accepted my call, maybe it was God saying, we need to make sure that this is a mature faith. Let's... (laughs) Do is needed to test that. And that testing was such that I felt a deep level of betrayal from people that I believe I loved and trusted. I felt an isolation and a rejection that was just really deep. 
and hurtful. And I literally was like, okay, Lord, these are your people. You can keep them. I am done. I am so done. And what I experienced, because I, I even tried to walk away from the church. It's like you're telling my story. <laughs> you know, God doesn't want an untested soldier. You know, he wants soldiers that have been tried in the battle. Because as you mature, the attacks that come, come in very subtle ways. And someone who has grown in the Lord starts to notice the nuances and starts to pick up on when something might actually be an attack from the enemy, as opposed to being um, a bad day, you know, or being because we didn't get what we wanted, the way that we wanted, when that we wanted. And, and whenever we tend not to be fully sated according to our own pleasures and preferences, we want to spiritualize it. It's an attack from the enemy. Well, no, you didn't get what you wanted the way you wanted, when you wanted it, how you wanted it, you know, and that has nothing to do with the enemy. <laughs> that has more to do with expectations coming from a place of pride and need I say complacency. So yeah, I was shaken <laughs> to the core. And it took me seven years to learn to trust Christians again. And interesting that it's seven years grieving when it is seriously intense grief can last up to seven years. Grieving the loss of a parent or the parent losing a child, it can last up to seven years intensely. And it doesn't mean that after that period, we don't feel the sadness. and We don't have moments that bring back a wave of intensity. But there is a fairly consistent sense of loss and, and a fairly consistent mourning and feeling of the intensity of that mourning for periods of years. And from the time that I was like, I am done, to the time that I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for what you're going to do next, Lord. I'm, I'm ready for, it was almost like stepping out of a cave and into the light. And it took about seven years. And in that time, I realized the one thing that was consistent, the one thing that couldn't be shaken away, was that God would not leave me. And it's this development, this growth, this unfolding in my life that has shaped my opinions and shaped my theology and, and shaped my walk. Do you so. remember the time that you felt clearly that God was calling you to ordination? That was no single clear moment. It's interesting because I was at a, a particular church. I was living in Lynn at the time. And I was speaking to the pastor in this particular summer. And I was describing to him, I said, do you know when you watch a Western? Now, I'm not a big fan of Westerns, but my father likes Westerns. <laughs> so <laughs> on occasion, when I'm home, 
<laughs> and even when I was a child, you know, there'd be Westerns on. And depending on the, the show, there'd be a train coming in from the distance. And as it's coming in, that sound from the train becomes louder and more insistent and more intense. And that's what I kept feeling or noticing that there was something in the distance that kept coming closer and closer and closer with greater insistency that I couldn't shake. God in my life has always been what I've described as awakening to the the light of the dawn. When you wake up to the shining sun, it's very slow. It doesn't happen immediately. The sun isn't just suddenly there. You know, you, you, while your eyes are still closed, you become aware that there's a growing light. And eventually that light becomes strong enough that you're like, okay, I can't just roll over one more time. And so you open your eyes. And when that, when you open your eyes, you're like, wow, this is a beautiful day. Kind of amazing. And you start to stretch in it. And you start to move in it and through it. And you let the sun beat down on your skin. And if you're inside, even if it's just for the sun to beat down on your face, you're taking in all of that amazing and wonderful light. And that's what my connection to God has been like. It's been like waking up to the sun and... So, and literally and figuratively, you know, because we say S-O-N of God. And so, yes, I woke up to the sun. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, it's been a process. It's Mm. been an awakening. Mm. And there was never any sudden like, oh, yeah, it was this one thing. Yeah. You know? (laughs) It's quite interesting because we hear all kinds of stories of people being called into ministry and they leave everything else behind. But you have Mm -hmm. walked forward with social work in your other hand, you know, and ministry in the other hand. You've stayed, I I don't like the dichotomy that we have the sacred and profane like Mm workspaces. I don't think that's an actual dichotomy, but that's how we how we think of it, but yeah. you have walked forward in both of them. And yes. so you've done all of this social work. How did you know that social work would be your professional career alongside <laughs> of the ordination church involvement? Social work and Christianity have never been separate for me. Social work actually emerged out of the Christian charity movement where Christians were going into urban environments and saying, there's a lot of poverty here, we can do some good. And so they started doing this work and created what were called at the time settlement houses to work with the poor and to work with immigrants. And that is the work that eventually became identified as social work. Hmm. And that ultimately was professionalized. And In the professionalization, as happened with a lot of fields, they try to take the faith aspect out of it. That just never happened for me. Hmm. So I've been doing God's work from the Hmm. beginning. 
It just had different names. Yeah. And early on, I remember one of my pastors talked about, ask the Lord for the word to stand on. God always gives you a word to stand on. And this word may be for the season. It may be for a moment. But there may also be a word that is the verse that guides your life. And the word that God gave me that guided my life in Isaiah 58, it's verse 12, that you'll be called repair of the breach and restore of broken walls. And that mission has manifested in my life. I've always lived that mission, but it's had different manifestations. Social work is just one of those manifestations. Teaching is one of the manifestations. Counseling is one of the manifestations. Spiritual direction is one of the manifestations. Preaching and being pastoral is one of the manifestations. Mm -hmm. It is... um interesting with your pastoral heart. I can hear this movement towards restoration, towards healing, and yet also professionally, you've worked a lot with individuals and communities who've experienced trauma. Do you think that individuals experience trauma in the same way a community can experience trauma Okay, that's a huge question. Yeah. Um, allow me to try to take a bite. Was that African proverb, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yes. Let me take a bite. Now, what's interesting is it wasn't until you just asked that question and, and your intro to the question about trauma and healing and that it never occurred to me that that is also a part of my calling to be identified with this mission of being restorer of broken walls walls that are broken especially back in the day they were broken because of some form of trauma it's very rarely that it was just oh it just fell down over time it was abandoned and the wall crumbled walls are found around cities, around fortresses. And when they are crumbled, it's because there's been a siege. That's trauma. And until you ask the question, that part of this progressive revelation of my mission had not previously been, that connection Hmm. had not been made. But yeah, I've been doing work with trauma and learning more about it. And... Individual trauma may be an incident or it may be aspects of life that we experience so consistently over time that we begin to experience or or manifest the symptoms of trauma. In the African descended community, the broader diaspora in this country, racism exists. And racism exists for any people of color that come into these United States. I can't speak to all of it, but I can speak more to the African diasporic experience here. And because there is a way in which the form of racism against people with black and brown skin has been much more intense and much more obvious and and much more vicious and destructive. 
And when you experience that consistently and ways in which systems that were designed to facilitate community progress and, and, and wholeness begin to get torn down simply because of the perspective that is, it's going to be benefiting black and brown people. Mm-hmm. The majority of poor people in this country are white. Of the population of those who are poor, the majority is white. It's disproportionate among people of color. But when you're talking numerically, the majority are white. And yet even poor white people will vote for those that will say that you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Mm -hmm. You don't need handouts. Because of the ways in which those phrases have become weaponized to speak against the benefit people of color may experience from these very Mm -hmm. services. So it is effectively cutting off your nose to spite your face because people that look like you will benefit. This is one of the ironies of racism. People who look like you benefit from the services that exist in greater numbers. But because of that very narrow concern that people who don't like you look like you will also benefit You'd rather see the service gutted. And those kinds of decisions are traumatizing when they're happening consistently in ways that affect your community in greater numbers. Trauma impacts the body and it can affect the ability of the body to heal. It can affect our immune systems. And so I believe that what we are seeing in relation to covid being more devastating in communities of color has a lot to do with the daily experience of constant microaggressions that Mm -hmm. over time have themselves become the collective trauma that Mm -hmm. impact the people and their immune systems and the jobs that they have that put them in places where they're more exposed to the possibility of, of getting this disease. There's this connection there to the collective trauma of racism. And I believe it's uh, Resma Menachem that says trauma decontextualized can look like culture in a people. And so there are ways in which the trauma that the people have experienced over time, we kind of and this is just a human thing, we don't want to constantly be reminded of what has hurt us. So eventually we decontextualize. We don't look at why we do what we do. Originally, the reason was for safety, but it was safety from a trauma. And it was functional in that immediate context. But when you remove the context, then you start to pass that behavior on as culture. It may no longer be functional, but people still do it because it's now considered part of our culture. I've been interested in thinking about or becoming more aware of historical trauma. It makes me wonder, especially being a Western nation with Western thought processes where we're kind of 
individual forward thinking, or at least we tell ourselves this, we're moving forward. We don't want to look behind us. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is because I'm white. I'm asking this question. And maybe it's such a different experience with anyone with darker skin than my own. Are people aware of historical trauma? And that can probably show up in people in different ways, different family histories, different family historical mm -hmm. trauma. I don't hear in the white communities that I belong to this awareness of and dealing with or seeking healing for historical trauma. Is that just because the white culture is the dominant culture, do you think? Like, is there a, a much more bigger awareness of that in the African mm -hmm. community or in the black church that there's historical trauma on top of or underneath the daily trauma that people are experiencing? I think it has more to do with the fact that when people have painful histories, they try to truncate history. And I see that in the white community a lot. Yes, that. Yes. And so I don't think that historical trauma is specific to any one people group. I mean, take a look at what the English did to the Irish. Take a look at what the folks, that the Normans who came out of Normandy, France, what's now known as Normandy, France, but when the Norman invasion into what's known as England, occurred. William the Conqueror, I believe is his name, in 1066. So there have been wars, not just rumors of wars, that have visited traumas upon different people. And a lot of European history also involves warring cultures. Well, warring cultures, is going. they're going to visit the, the conqueror is going to visit trauma upon the people that get conquered. So though England emerged in, shall we say, somewhere in the last 600 years as being, and, and a lot of countries in Western Europe evolved as being dominant cultures and dominant simply because of having a martial worldview, that it's about us conquering mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. Because... The rest of the world exists to serve us. Well, if you're a Trekkie like I am, that sounds like the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how Star Trek applies to every conversation. <laughs> it really is funny how it does that. But think about the ways in which even those kinds of perspectives are brought out in media entertainment, mm -hmm. we think, oh, it's just a storyline. It comes from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Those are expressions, I think, of forms of remembered trauma. Being exposed to an invader that takes your territory, that rapes your women and kills your men and conscripts your children. That story was visited upon Africa in so many different nations there. That story was visited upon the native nations in this country and decimated some of them. It's forced moves and marches. But that story is also part of the people that did all of this traumatic stuff. So trauma is part of those histories as well. But maybe what has 
emerged as the martial perspective or the military perspective in the culture is a history of truncated trauma. The origins of the hurt and the wounds are no longer remembered, but the behavior that was generated as a result of that history has been passed on and has now become culture. I know these are really hard conversations, but I think that they're necessary conversations to have and just continually bring up because this means that trauma is going to be in the church. Trauma is going to be in our seminaries. Trauma is going to be present. And I think we need to, well, instead of truncating history or blocking it off, there's a need to bring it up, expose it to the air, and then let healing take place. Now, Dr. Dyer's chapter in the Gospel Hymenote book is called From Historical Trauma to Shalom. So next week, we work our way towards shalom, and I really hope you'll join me. The ability to bring these conversations to you is possible through my international team on Patreon. We have three continents represented, which is so super cool. People like Carrie and Scott Jenkins and my friend who would rather remain anonymous, but I know who you are and I still appreciate you. You make this podcast sustainable and commercial-free for all of you. If you would like to be a part of this team, you will find a link in the episode notes of the show. As always, it is wonderful to sit and exchange ideas, even when they are challenging ideas, with you here at this virtual table. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created all the good sounds you hear. I look forward to our conversation next week. So until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.